Bugle, audio newspaper for a visual world. Hello, Buglers, and welcome. Am I still allowed to say welcome, or is that off-brand for UK uh, PLC these days? Um, I'm not sure, actually. I do quite a bit of BBC work, so I've got to make sure I have a balance for and against the government. So let's go with welcome and f*** off. Uh, That should cover things. To the Bugle. Uh, I am Andy Zaltzman. This is issue 4,256 of the Bugle, to be precise. Yes! 256 episodes since we relaunched. Meaning, fanfare please, Chris. Bigger fanfare please, Chris. Meaning that you can now have a straight eight-round knockout to decide your favourite post-relaunch Bugle episode. A competition that, assuming you did one match every two hours to allow for each episode averaging about 40 minutes uh, to play in full with a half-time orange some post-match analysis and a look ahead to the next contest uh, going by about four matches a day tapering down to two a day from the quarter-final stage onwards with a break a day's break in between the round of 16 and the quarter-finals and the quarter-finals and the semi-finals and two days between the semi-finals and the finals and of course no third-place playoff uh, that's precisely ten weeks Ten weeks of your life that you could do that competition in. Uh, Ironically, uh, this beginning to this week's episode probably means it's already looking a good bet to be knocked out in the first round. Unless our two guests this week can pull this episode out of the fire. Let's find out. Uh, Joining me to try to rescue this episode. Um, uh, From a car in a basement in Australia... um, which may need some explanation. It's Alice Fraser. Hello, Alice. Hello, Andy. Uh, there is no competition. Everybody's favourite episode is my debut <laughs> on the Bugle. Of course. Uh, where I launched the pun. I think it was the one where I said Arbeit macht fries. All right. About Sean's spices. <laughs> Um, fast food uh, endeavor i am in a basement in a car um in newcastle in australia because i did my fringe festival show here and uh oh it was terrible uh but also (laughs) my baby (laughs) my baby and my dad are up in the hotel room looking after each other and uh, this is the only place that i can podcast also cars (laughs) have great acoustics and it's just a fun place to hang out and I don't think I'm the only person who's hanging out in a car to avoid their children. I go for a walk sometimes in my suburb in Sydney, and it's just like every fifth car is a guy sitting behind his steering wheel on an iPad, just <laughs> illuminated in the dark, <laughs> sadly avoiding his life. Yeah. I think most professional motor racing drivers are just avoiding their children, uh, to be honest. <laughs> um. When you say they're avoiding their children, you don't mean like physically on the track. Because that is... <laughs> That is a new sport I would 100% tune into. Uh, well, the voice you just heard there, uh, joining us uh, for, for the first time this year, uh, it's Neil Delamere. Hello, Neil. You're not in a basement or in a car, uh, by no, the way. No, I am celebrating St. Patrick's Day. I didn't realise it was St. Patrick's Day until I woke up and felt extra Irish. I just <laughs> I just felt both <laughs> oppressed historically and lyrical. It's, it's, an, it's an unusual <laughs> feeling, but I'm prepared to go to, to, for today, I have to say. Well, as as a British person, for those those two emotions, uh, I'll, I will say um, uh, sorry and you're welcome. Um. <laughs> I'm, I'm stuck on the on the race car drivers who are trying to escape from their children. Is that what they mean by I'm following in the footsteps of my father? Is that are they, are they just being tracked? <laughs> it's quite possible. It's quite possible. I mean, there are a lot of a lot of children of racing drivers themselves become racing drivers. Mick Schumacher. Yeah, I don't know if that's you know more than. In other professions, um, yeah, whether the children of 
assassins themselves become assassins. I'm not. I, I don't know. We'll have to. We'll have to look at the stats. Uh, Chris, uh, you are also uh, for this St. Patrick's Day uh, special uh, wearing a, a glorious Irish green football shirt. You yeah, were telling us the vintage beforehand. That was nineteen eighty. It, it, it's the eighty eight ninety because back then you didn't like change a football shirt every six months. So um, Ireland kept this shirt for about three years, and it actually had a sponsor on it, right? Um, <laughs> because they didn't have any money. I don't know. <laughs> Glory does. Yeah, happy St Patrick's Day, Andy. And I love right. the fact that the only two professions you could think of were race car driver and assassin. Well, those are the two that the two that got away from you know. I've ended up with two professions: comedian and cricket statistician. And yeah, they were very much the losing semi finalists behind racing driver and assassin. But, you know, what, what a UCAS form that actually was when you were filling in that. <laughs> Listen, I, I don't. Know, I just don't know if I get the points to be a ninja. If it's not, if it's not a ninja, it's definitely who opened the batting for Australia in 1911. Both race car drivers and assassins spend a surprising amount of time just spinning their wheels <laughs> Andy yes do you find that being on the BBC as you are so often and the BBC's obsession with balance I, I really I'm conscious of this as somebody who, who writes uh, for some of the things that you do for the BBC does that leak into statistics as well when you say a statistic do you then have to say but also maybe numbers aren't real uh, yeah basically you've got to be balanced in all things so what the way I do it is I do one uh, true statistic and then one false one and uh, you know just find that <laughs> you know, no, no one seems to notice um, <laughs> he, does, he does negative numbers in the statistics just to keep everybody happy <laughs> as long as all my statistics in any given day add up to naught uh, then that's fine. That's all, that's all I'm seeking for when I'm on the BBC. Yeah, but you don't like not because not originally was invented by Arab uh, mathematicians. So anything from outside, you can't use that on the BBC oh, right. these days, can you? Oh. Yeah. What I are you going to do really there? You need some sort of ang- Anglo-Saxon concept. That's what you need. <laughs> yeah, well, I'll just build a henge and, and be done with it. Um, we are recording. On St. Patrick's Day, um, to commemorate St. Patrick's Day, I'm, I'm recording in front of a green screen, uh, albeit with, with a picture of London uh, on it. Uh, it's the 17th of March, 2023. On this day, in the year 180, Commodus became sole emperor of the Roman Empire at the age of just 18, following the death of his father, Marcus Aurelius. Now, contemporary accounts suggest that uh, Marcus Aurelius was not even slightly murdered by his own son. But thanks to modern technology, we now know from watching films that uh, Commodus did, in fact, himself murder his father, uh, before, of course, himself being later slain in the Colosseum by a vengeful gladiator. And it's, it's amazing how wrong the historians of ancient Rome could be. Half the time, I think they just made shit up for a good story because they couldn't be asked to do the research. Um, on the 19th of March... In 1932, so two days from now as we record, possibly tomorrow as you listen at Bugler. Uh, I'm addressing you individually there. I don't think our listenership has collapsed to just one listener. Um, <laughs> I hope not, anyway. Um, on this day, in 19, well, on the 19th of March in 1932, the Sydney Harbour Bridge uh, was opened, which if Alice was not in a basement in a car in Newcastle, <laughs> Australia, rather than uh, in uh, in Sydney... Uh, where she normally uh, uh, is of late, um, you'd be able to just confirm that it is still still there. But I guess we'll just have to uh, rely on that uh, that assumption. Prior to the Sydney Harbour Bridge opening, Alice, the only way to get across Sydney Harbour was by a combination of one or more of dolphin, miracle, teleportation, fruit-powered jet suit, and catapult. 
yeah, so it's amazing, you know, the, the influence that bridge has had on Sydney as a city. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Or if you bite a wombat in the right place, it'll kick you across the harbour. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, the bridge was just so much so much better than that, than those options. Um, uh, on the 20th of March... Uh, I'm still in the comatose thing, to be perfectly honest with you. Uh, on the 20th he, invent- of- he invented darts that year, of course, you know that, don't oh, you? Oh, yes, well, of course, yeah. Um, and the commode, which is a chair that you shit in. <laughs> <laughs> look, any chair you shit yeah. in is a commode if you look at it enough in the right way. Yeah, technically, all cha- if you bite a, rom- a wombat in the wrong place, <laughs> all chairs are commodes. <laughs> Um, on the 20th of March, so that will be Monday, as we record, um, it will be the 107th anniversary of uh, Albert Einstein, little Freddy Physics himself, publishing his general theory of relativity, uh, which of course stated that an elephant looks tiny if it's a mile away, but a mouse looks f***ing huge if I waggle it in your face. Uh, that was 107 <laughs> years ago on Monday. As always, a section of the bugle is going straight in the bin. This week we have a special questions in modern philosophy section uh, provided to us by our in-house bugle philosopher, Professor VX Buckerstaff, uh, in which we pose the following key questions in modern philosophy. If furniture could talk, would sofas start a war? Would the widespread use of the social media term hashtag free will itself disprove the existence of free will? If an animal demands to be eaten but only by a vegan, do meat eaters have a moral obligation to roost on a potato until it hatches? And if scientists <laughs> discovered that the only way to save the human species was by cloning 100 million Cristiano Ronaldos and 100 million Judy Denches and letting them loose onto an otherwise unpopulated island for 100 years, which island should we use? Uh, if you have answers to any of those questions, do email in. Yes, Alice? I have an answer to the first one, oh, which is if sofas could talk, would they start a war? I, it would depend... Uh, how the terms were couched. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, this episode is really recovering very, very promisingly. I, I can see this being a quarter finalist at this rate. In what f***ing competition? <laughs> <laughs> Top story this week, the sea. Uh, love it or hate it, uh, believe in it or think it's yet another conspiracy or scam by the elite, the sea is here to stay. And uh, since we last recorded, the nations of the world have reached a truly historic agreement to try to protect the oceans of this planet. It's followed 10 years of negotiations. Uh, The UN High Seas Treaty has been agreed and it will come into force at some unspecified point in the relatively nearish future, if it actually happens. This is um, a a huge moment for the sea, a much underrated part of the world. Uh, we focus so much on land, um, but actually the sea. Well, it's what a good seventy percent of this planet. Are you, are you both fans of uh, the sea as a, a as a continent? Do you think it's had its time, and maybe we, you know we're just mollycoddling it now by throwing treaties in its direction to try and butter it up? Well, we we I, we need the sea because I'd like to keep my surname right. Of course, like, otherwise yeah. I'm just called Neil. <laughs> if, if there is no sea, so yeah. that's how that works. Right. Um, I'm a big fan of this UN treaty that, that 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 has come into force now, or will come into force. But the real question here, I think, Andy and Alice, is is can the fish be trusted to keep their side of the deal? I think that's the real key here. Like they are notoriously tricky to deal with. Uh, some podcasts which have you believe that there's no such thing as one. So uh, I just don't think it's the right time to appease them. But apparently, apparently, all the main parties came to the table. The UN 
Captain Birdseye, Poseidon, all all the big hitters, and, and they hammered out a deal. Um, some of the coral-like animals apparently were the last to hold out. Uh, they wanted a full-scale war with the UN, uh, <laughs> but the UN then reached out to the traditional foe, the true crabs. Uh, <laughs> following the old law of the sea, my an enemy's enemy is my friend. And oh, if it, sorry, can we can we just 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 let that line have a little bit of space, Neil? You yeah. can't just say that and move straight on. I mean, I thought you'd like that. You were right. If you like that one, I'll have a crack at octopus pun coming up in a few minutes. A cracking one, eh? <laughs> um, it, t- it took ten years of negotiations to get this this treaty signed, which uh, involved disagreements on fishing rights, shipping lanes, deep sea mining, the rights of underwater volcanoes to erupt whenever they wanted, and the amount of salt that is allowed in the sea. They finally settled on a slightly vague-sounding pledge that it should be the same saltiness as a pan of water you're cooking pasta in. Uh, so we'll see if, if that works out. Um, I mean, Alice, hugely tricky negotiation when there are so many different parties involved, as Neil was was pointing out. Uh, obviously, uh, you know, us humans, with our evolutionary nostalgia when we were aquatic microorganisms living simple lives in the utopian idyll of the ocean without social media and everyone shouting at each other. The plankton... Uh, with their unlikely if practical lobbying alliance with whale hunters uh, the whales themselves always complain about submarines trying to seduce their partners i mean all these warring factions and yet somehow they have hacked out a deal yeah and the massive delay of course at the launch party where uh, the king of the ocean uh, wanted his daughters to do a performance and opened the sea seashell and his favorite daughter wasn't there um which really put a a halt on Shocking. on proceedings. I always think that uh, scene in The Little Mermaid where they open the seashell and there's no Ariel there. They don't. Ha- I, whoever wrote that scene doesn't understand show business at all. There is an understudy. There is a manatee in a red wig waiting backstage for her chance to shine, and she would have been there. Yep. I just. I feel like my reaction to this story is very shaped by my childhood. It took them 10 years to negotiate an agreement to protect the world's ocean, something that Captain Planet could have solved in one episode. <laughs> the fishing industry was a very interested party in any treaties to do with uh, the sea. I mean, they must spend a lot of time as an industry just wishing people to hurry up with food printing technology because, frankly, it's f***ing cold and wet out there. Um, and the, the fishes themselves as well... The problem that they have in any negotiation is they often forget what they were trying to negotiate. So it's it's it, it is a really hard thing. You can understand why it took quite quite so long. It's it's designated as much as thirty percent of the seas as protected areas. Um, I guess the concern with that is that all the fish and other sea creatures will now move to that thirty percent of the ocean that is protected, and property prices in the remaining seventy percent could collapse, causing an economic crash that ironically could bankrupt the entire ocean-based world. So. You know, there are clearly stumbling blocks uh, ahead. Any particular I mean, highlights? Real estate, ocean, real estate problems in the deep ocean will be solved by rising sea levels as... I guess so. ...real estate problems on Earth will be created. <laughs> but, but not enough people talk about the gentrification of coral reefs, though. I think, and, and that's a good point that you raised there, Andy. I yeah. mean, Increasingly white coral reefs. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> One man bleached is another man's property prices. <laughs> Um, And obviously, as Jane Austen herself once wrote, it is a truth universally acknowledged that a species in possession of a good planet must be in want of an economic system that strives to exploit that planet for all it's worth until there's nothing left but a post-apocalyptic wasteland of barren destruction and the faint echo of some scientists saying, we did warn you. And I I, I guess... (laughs) She really was ahead of her time, wasn't she? She was very much ahead of her time. So, you know, there are these... So far. You know, the, the... 
preserving the oceans you know it's one of those classic woke things the idea that yeah we should have a planet that continues to function in uh, the future more than six months away uh that, that yeah this treaty's trying to address yeah did you know her, her real name was actually jane austen short for jane austen texas revitalized <laughs> by joe rogan's comedy club <laughs> I, I didn't know that no. we are i mean the bbc which you mentioned earlier on it's uh, it's founding ethos was inform educate and entertain and uh, i think we're three <laughs> we're three for three so far uh, emily bronte's real name was emily brontosaurus <laughs> a lot of people don't know that they were a very big family <laughs> an unfortunate nickname that they had to shorten. In other CNews, scientists have warned of a, quote, alarming rise in microplastic pollution in the seas. They've claimed that there's now 2.3 million tonnes of microplastics, a tenfold increase in just 15 years. Now, the question arises, is this because we're putting way more microplastics into the ocean? Or is it because the creatures that live in the ocean have been trained to be more discerning eaters and are no longer eating as much plastic as they were? This is a good news story, people. This is evolution in action. This is scientific overreach. I Like scientists telling us that this is an alarming rise in ocean pollution. It's only alarming if you personally don't want to piss microbeads. <laughs> Like a like a machine gun of, of uh, horrifying texture. Well, it's, it's only alarming if you don't want a baby whose brain is full of tiny bubbles, or you don't want to be so full of plastic that you function as a human ball pit. I just feel like you can always spin this as a positive. Uh, plastic doesn't age. Maybe this is the anti-aging solution we're all looking for. Yeah. I yeah. don't know. Uh, I think it's a bad thing, guys. Right. I, I, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so you're working, Neil? So, yeah, scientists have found microplastics in human bloodstreams, in human waste, and recently in our lungs. We are evolving into a kinder surprise. <laughs> we have plastic inside our bodies, and right. it's really put me off using my dildo. What is the point <laughs> if it's already there in assembling your own fake phallus? There right. are 2.3 million tons of microplastics in the ocean. If you buy the action figure of a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle, it will have less plastic than an actual turtle. And that is what our generation has done. When St. Peter asks us at the pearly gates, what have you done? And the boomers go, oh, well, we defeated communism. And the Gen Z people go, we started a school strike to effect change. He's going to look at us and say, what did you do? And we'll say, we laminated Flipper from the inside out. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, we do need to keep this in perspective. I mean, 2.3 million tonnes of microplastic potentially endangering pretty much everything that lives in the sea might sound a lot, but there are a third of a billion cubic miles of water in the sea, and that weighs way more than 2.3 million tonnes. So there's still way more water than plastic. In fact, uh, I, th I would say more than 90% of the sea is still water rather than plastic so this yeah. is just just a classic example of the media getting hold of something yeah i mean if, if cleopatra looked at it that way like there's m way more milk in this bath than asp yes <laughs> it's all about perspective isn't it yeah this uh, this should be safe ow what was that <laughs> oh maybe i feel bad because i'm lactose intolerant I was so pleased when I found out that microplastics were caused by synthetic fibre breakdown because it justifies my decision to never wear anything but the corpse of a dead torn-torn. <laughs> um, <laughs> I've got two questions there. Okay, yep. 
um, uh, wh- what is that? <laughs> and it's a Star Wars reference. Oh, because I am the I'm your nerd fantasy girl. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's my brand that I'm starting to brand see, myself as. When an Australian per- I'm person, pivoting. when an Australian person just says the name of a creature, you just assume it's some weird <laughs> shit that you've never seen before. I 100 percent thought it was an animal from Victoria or from Western Australia or a mate of hers who owns a ute. And he's called Todd Todd. Oh, <laughs> yes, Chris right. has shown us a picture. Right, there we go. I'd assumed it was you know something that had a, a pouch under its arm for keeping other people's children that are shat out of its eyeball, like most other Australian animals do. <laughs> a final piece of sea news now. Uh, well, controversy in, in the sea world because of a plan to build the world's first octopus farm and scientists and octopus fans have uh, are up in multiple limbs um, <laughs> over welfare issues and you know, the, the ethics of farming octopods, uh, famously intelligent creatures. I mean, amongst the various words you don't often hear on public transport these days, uh, I'll tell you what this world needs, an octopus farm. It's got to be pretty high up there. Um, I mean, it's not something that we, you generally think about as a, I mean, how... Does a combine harvester work underwater? I, I I don't know how I don't know how this would work, but the great mistake the octopus community has made over the years, the the many millions of years of evolution that it's had the opportunity uh, to, to to change it to take control of itself is remaining extremely delicious when boiled and sprinkled with paprika, and that is why this issue has arisen. As an octopus fan myself, or, or a cephalopodophile, as I think we're called. Um, I'm really against this idea of, of, of farming octopuses. I think if you can't find the octopus on your own and challenge it to a duel like a gentleman, you shouldn't, des- you don't deserve to eat an octopus. They seem like the smartest thing that people still eat. They're like right on that borderline of like, ethical ethically questionable and they're not just a handsy fish is what i'm saying they have long <laughs> memories and they do art and they have communities and they have opinions and like little personalities and i don't want to get on the wrong side of an octopus because i don't even know what side that would be they're round <laughs> handsy fish might be my favorite term i've ever heard on this podcast um, i I think I speak for all the long-time listeners of this show when I say I'm disappointed you squandered the opportunity, Andy, to call this a cephalopodcast. I'm absolutely <laughs> disgusted by that. Sorry, sorry. This it's company is planning to, far- f- to farm a million octopuses, or octopi, I don't know, for food. Uh, but they're solitary, and they're used to the dark, and they're going to be put in tanks with other animals under lights, and 10 to 15% of them will die. That is not a farm. That is Squid Game Part 2. It is, <laughs> it's not right. The plan state that the company has achieved a level... This is a, I love this phrase, this quote. Has achieved a level of domestication in the species and they, that they do not show important signs of cannibalism or competition for food. Not that they don't show any signs of cannibalism, just not the <laughs> important signs of cannibalism. Like, they do eat each other. You know, they do eat each other, but just not so much that the other one will die. Maybe three or four tentacles, but then they're absolutely stuffed after that. Tentacles are the breadsticks of the sea. And, and <laughs> one of the things that they're suggesting they're going to do, which is horrendous, is they're going to kill them using icy water. 
right? So the icy water will dispatch the octopuses in a way. It doesn't seem to work on Wim Hof, but it does work on octopuses. And there was a cognitive neuro- neuroscientist in lots of the papers, and he was saying this is a very cruel thing to do. Uh, a more humane way would be to kill them the way fishermen do, which is clubbing them over the head. Now, if the less cruel way <laughs> is bludgeoning bludgeoning them to death that is not great if the CEO of your company's gone I don't really want to do the hypothermia thing it's cruel has anybody got any ideas uh, blunt force trauma to the head oh you big softy Colin you big softy okay That's, Matt yeah. we, this just needs not to happen I mean, also, when you think about it, you know, this farm, a million octopuses, a million hyper-intelligent creatures with a deep-seated, long-standing blood feud against humanity. That, again, is scene one in a science fiction film that ends with the destruction of humanity. It is way too big a risk. Way, way too big a risk. Um, uh, And you mentioned, Neil, that this is more like Squid Game. The way I look at it is you've got, you know, these uncommunicative creatures who tend to live fairly solitary lifestyles in the dark but are now being forced into communal tanks with light shining on them and then given extremely cold baths basically we are talking about the same method used to develop teenagers and british private schools through the 19th and 20th centuries only the end goal is slightly different you wanted to create a tasty dinner rather than the ruling class so yeah it's just but you know i guess learned behavior in in i think Hansy Fish, swap, ca- Captain D. Swap, 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 swap. <laughs> that would be amazing. <laughs> Just trying to... F- Boris Johnson changing his colour to blend him with a rock. Oh, I guarantee you the handshakes would get less damp. <laughs> he's trying to avoid child support again. Um, the, the intelligence of octopuses... Um, I mean, you might think, are octopuses actually all that? You know, how clever can an octopus be? The last time they put an octopus on the TV quiz show Mastermind, it just answered eight to every question and then uh, waddled <laughs> off. Um, but there are, have been reports of octopuses managing to escape from aquariums. In fact, there was one pair of octopuses in an American aquarium that tricked their way out by octosplatting a security guard, stealing their uniform, causing a distraction in the penguin enclosure by reporting <laughs> a polar bear sighting and then bursting out using one of the aquarium minibuses and going on a four-week alcohol-fueled crime spree across six states that ended in a police ambush and a lethal gunflight outside a Spanish tapas bar in Louisiana. Um, so yeah, these are creatures that we need to fear, respect, and occasionally eat. Otherwise... We are doomed. <laughs> I saw a. Um, I was in Greece and I saw a bit of splashing out at the sea, and a guy slowly is coming out of the sea and he, he he's having a bit of a wrestle. And he, I'm sure I remember correctly, he had a trident in one hand. Yeah. And as he got closer, you could tell he was still dueling with a live octopus. And he got. It was a rocky beach, and there, there's as a family, so it's three small children, two adults, only other people on the beach. And he finally gets himself into a position where we get the octopus by one leg and in front of us repeatedly beat the octopus to death on a rock in front of us. And then when it was limp, he reached in, bit the ink sack out of it, spat it out, nodded at us and carried on like we were supposed to continue a day just as normal. (laughs) What a stag party that was. (laughs) Oh my so God. compared to the ice, I'm not so sure. <laughs> I really hope that Daniel Craig was going, I like your vision for when I walk out to sea, but I've got a better <laughs> idea for that. How about James Bond 
beats a squid to death and then bites <laughs> its insect out in front of everybody. Mm, that could be the rebrand Casino Royale really needs. <laughs> it's octopusy, surely. <laughs> I think... If I remember from my Hal and Roger adventure book series, uh, for, as a child, <laughs> scientifically accurate as it was, uh, I think that's it, uh, biting out its brain. Right. That's, that's worse. <laughs> I don't eat octopus. Right. Well, I, well, I have eaten octopus, but I've never killed an octopus with my bare hands whilst wielding a trident and confusing a family. <laughs> confusing is an understatement. Yeah. <laughs> It was Two a, out of three isn't that bad. It was a spear. It didn't have three heads, Andy. So yeah. <laughs> Britain news now. And, well, this is also related to the sea. Um, since um, our last bugle about ten days ago, we're shifting to Friday recordings for the next, uh, the next few weeks, um, the uh, UK government has... Um, well, incurred some uh, criticism from uh, various people who, on the more humanitarian end of the uh, the political seesaw, over their launch of a new scheme to uh, clamp down on small boats crossing the Channel, um, packed with what I think in former terms times would have been referred to as human beings, but I think that's a term that is now the government is trying to remove from legal parlance they've uh, launched another three word slogan stop the boats um i, I don't know, i've been three word slogans increasingly popular in uh, in 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 politics my my own personal favorite three word slogan is use three words um or hyphenate <laughs> unnecessarily whenever possible in fact one all the time um it's uh, it was a huge story sort of last week um and it was made huger by the input of one of uh, England's greatest ever footballers, Gary Lineker, who is a um, BBC uh, football presenter uh, now and has a huge social media following. And he tweeted um, to the effect that the language used by the government was reminiscent of some of the language used in 1930s Germany. Now, of course, when you uh, make a comment like that it will be reported as Lineker says the Tories are all Hitler which was not quite what he said uh, but it led to uh, it was it almost became the Lineker thing became a bigger story than the fact that the government was um, uh, launching or developing a policy that uh, was um, I think well off the cliff in terms of uh, a, a lack of humanity it's um it's kind of interesting what what it showed about where Britain is as a nation politically and just the nature of, of public debate these days. Uh, Gary Lineker, Neil, of course, famously scored England's goal against Ireland in the 1990 World Cup uh, in a one-all draw in the group stage. You don't need to be a rocket scientist to know that. Um, and then Kevin Sheedy equalised, yes, yeah. um, um, for the forces of good, I think the rest <laughs> of the world said on the day. Uh, Alice? I mean, Stop the Boats is an Australian slogan. Yes. It's nice to know that you shipped your convicts to us and we ship our barbarism back to you. <laughs> uh, I think that's that's how it, it's farm the farming econo economics of it work. But I, I, I saw Rishi Sunak tweeted uh, a number of things, which he left up. Uh, I'm, I'm generally not a big fan of, like, commenting on things that people have tweeted until they've had time to think better and take them down. But he's left it up for many days in a row now, uh, saying that people who come on small boats to the UK illegally or claim uh, it come to the UK illegally will not benefit 
Uh, and this was the real the real kicker for me was it will not benefit from the UK's modern slavery protections, um, which I think is a great news for anybody who uh, wanted to have slaves in the UK but <laughs> didn't want to bring them in legally. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds about right. There, there are some people in Parliament that just love an old three-word slogan on immigration, don't they? Stop the boats, get Brexit done, our bite. Well, you know the, you know the rest of that one. Uh, every little helps, and always Coca-Cola. I don't know all the rules. Uh, the paranoia from the certain newspapers on this is just unbearable. They're here. They're off the coast. They're in small boats. They're coming. They're not the. F- Vikings, will you relax for Christ's <laughs> sake? This is an uh, yet another unenforceable, cruel law change to throw red meat to a certain base, and there's this huge paranoia about small boats. And like, it's like it's going to get worse because this isn't going to work. So they'll be like, oh, 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 we're, "We hate all small boats. There'll be no small boats. We're going to make small boats illegal. Lilos, they're banned as well. Ships in <laughs> bottles. That's how borrowers illegally get into the country." <laughs> Doors, doors are banned. Kate Wins had clearly floated for some time on one after the Titanic went down. And as a precautionary measure, uh, Stephen Redgrave and Matthew Pinsent will be executed, just in case. <laughs> to, to be fair to the government, though, Neil, they, they, they called it the Illegal Migration Bill. And it turns out that it is illegal in international law. So, I mean, this is a rare example of the government being being honest about what it's doing. It is saying its own bill, uh, unless I've missed... I don't know where the pause is supposed to be, if there's supposed to be a pause. But anyway, but, but they've called it the illegal migration yeah. bill. And yeah. essentially, they're, they're trying to deal with this kind of vast global humanitarian tragedy and the, 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 you know, the evils of people trafficking by being not particularly tough on the crime, but tough on the victims of crime, uh, twisting one of their, their, old, their old slogans. Yeah, I mean, you've got to admire the ambition there. The government already knows this immigration bill will break international law. They've intimated as much. The, the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill would break international law. Like, you, what? what's the next law that they'll aim for? I think gravity could go next, Andy. <laughs> I think it's a confected yeah. Brussels diktat it that is. the noble UK can finally take on now that Brexit has been done. This time next year, you could be floating on the ceiling, Andy, like a ginger Lionel Richie, just as Henry VIII would have wanted. You did not win the war to be pulled down to earth by some Euro magnetic force controlled by an unelected planet. And then if gravity goes, well, what about for every action there's an equal and opposite reaction? Yeah, but maybe there shouldn't. Hmm? How, maybe physics is, is the invention of lefty lawyers who don't want hard-working people to build perpetual motion machines. Hmm? Did you ever think of that? No, you didn't. Well, I mean, lefty, lefty Laws is one of the groups that were blamed for uh, pre- preventing the government putting through this illegal uh, legislation. And Suella Braverman, the Home Secretary, um, and part of the problem is I mean, their, their previous uh, strategy of or policy of trying to catapult people to Rwanda uh, has not. They've managed to get, I think, a total of zero people um, on the planes <laughs> to uh, Rwanda. Um under the ancient clause of the Magna Carta, out of sight, out of mind. I think that was legal under British law, if if nothing else. But Suella Bravman said there are 100 million people in the world who could qualify for protection under uh, asylum laws. Fortunately, but but just by pure luck, 99.93 million of them 
last year couldn't read a map or were just plain lazy, so didn't bother coming. But what if they did all come at once, which they won't? But what if they do? Uh, and that's the question that Bravman is trying to address. Warming to her numerically idiotic theme, Bravman, who holds one of the four great offices of state in the UK, brackets, what the f*** have we become? Added, there are likely billions more eager to come here if possible. Billions! Billions of people, billions of people want to come. If, if we do not stop handfuls of people coming here on small boats, there will be billions. We have currently in the UK heading towards 70 million people. We've, if billions do turn up, we're going to have to abandon our, our national addiction to underfunding in infrastructure. Uh, it's going to get, you know, the traffic's going to be, be, but why stop there? Why, why? I mean, why did she not just say trillions? If she really wanted to get the attention of the... But what... I mean, tr there could be trillions of people alive and dead. I mean, trillions of humans, zombies, g ghosts. I mean, th this, to me, shows the scale of the challenge that the government is at least doing something to try to mitigate. Just quickly on the, the Lineker thing, he was briefly suspended from the BBC and they had to do a high, football highlights programme with no uh, humans, uh, present, no presenters, no commentators, which was a, a slightly weird moment in British sports sports casting history. That The problem for Lineker uh, was that really what he should have said was rather than you know, comparing the language to what was used in 1930s Germany. He should have said it was the kind of language that would be used in a fictional drama series set in a hypothetical early to mid-20th century European country that is veering inexorably towards fascism. That would have made it fine. That would have made it ab as long as it was only, only pretend. One final story before uh, we fully run out of time. Um, uh, Alice, uh, a banking crisis has um, uh, is enveloping the world once more. The Silicon Valley Bank um, uh, in America uh, has collapsed. There's been various attempts to shore up other struggling banks on both sides of the Atlantic. Credit Suisse are borrowing $54 billion to keep their financial dinghy afloat. First Republic in America has been uh, given $30 billion. Um, dollars. That's for a bank that I've never heard of, and as far as most people are aware, might might well be fictional. What what is happening, Alice? And uh, uh, why is it happening so soon after the last f***ing idiotic financial collapse just 15 years ago? I mean, it's happening so soon after the last idiotic uh, fiscal coll collapse because Americans cannot be convinced to regulate their industry. Oh. Uh, they have a very peculiar idea about how everything works and it doesn't involve anyone uh, being held back from ravening capitalism. The particular way this bank collapsed is very telling about the weird sort of feudal system in Silicon Valley. The richest people heard about the possibility of a collapse first. They got their money out and then they told the people below them uh, who then did exactly the same thing and so on and so forth so that only the people who could least afford to lose all their money were left holding the bag without any money in it at the end. And I think the most sort of bizarre thing about this is watching libertarian tech lords spending years trying to convince people that the banking industry needs less government in order to be able to pivot lively into disruption or whatever and then they turn around immediately and ask for bailouts just it's just watching the gods of dramatic irony shoot themselves in the foot with <laughs> Chekhov's gun don't get me wrong 
I think people who put their money in a bank should be protected by the government, and some of them have been to a certain extent. I, ju- I, I genuinely think that there should be regulation, probably because I'm you know, too much of a wuss to believe in the inherent moral <laughs> virtue of letting people rip each other's throats out with their teeth in a state of nature until we have a king again. <laughs> but I feel like the core problem here is that so many loud thought leaders continuously present Silicon Valley success, tech success, as a function of a ruthless Darwinian survival of the fittest meritocratic Thunderdome-style situation when it mostly actually seems to be like a half-hype game gold rush for angel VC money dumps like some f***ed cargo cult (laughs) where they're all just begging the big man to drop money on them. Or that scene in Toy Story 2 where the little cute green alien sort of pre-minion prototypes are waiting for the claw machine to choose one of them to raise up into musk land. Businesses in Silicon Valley do not succeed because their business serves customers or meets a need. They succeed when some ridiculous gambler slash money duke in barefoot shoes who thinks he's better than wearing a suit to a business meeting, he has venture capital and he decides to give them a spin on the money wheel because they did, I don't know, a funky futuristic PowerPoint presentation and they both listen to the same podcasts. It's junk money being played with by impulse-driven narcissists who have a god complex and they all know it's not real, (laughs) which means that the moment someone tells them everyone else might find out it's not real, they start climbing each other to safety like ants in a flood. (laughs) Well, thanks for that insightful summary. I mean, the question I would ask, (laughs) does this show that the bugle has been going on too long? Because as the old saying goes, when a podcast spans two inanely avoidable global banking crises, either the podcast <laughs> has been going on too long or the global economy has got even more forgetful and stupid than it already was. <laughs> uh, that uh, brings us to the end of this week's uh, bugle. Uh, Neil, it's been lovely having you uh, having you back on. Do you have any forthcoming shows or other works you'd like to... Yes, I do a podcast. I do a podcast called Why Would You Tell Me That? And producer Chris said it's one of his favourite podcasts. And we talk about things that you should know, but maybe you don't, like uh, the woman who invented Monopoly, and for the exact opposite reason that you might think, and she got no credit for it. Uh, We interviewed... This this season, we interviewed the guy who's actually a rock star who did the voice for the IRA when it wasn't be allowed, it wasn't allowed to be on uh, UK TV. So check that out wherever you get your podcast. It's called Why Would You Tell Me That? Alice? I'm doing my show Twist um, at the Melbourne International Comedy Festival and then I'll be doing it in London and Tokyo uh, on the 18th of May and, um, wait, London will be after Tokyo and then Edinburgh Um Find me online at patreon.com slash Alice Fraser. I run writers meetings every week if you want to write with me there. Um, and I desperately undercharge for them because I don't know how to value my own labour. <laughs> <laughs> and don't forget also to listen to The Gargle, the uh, Bugles um, glossy magazine sister publication hosted by Alice. Oh, yeah. With a Sounds fun. Cast of it's not your favourite podcast, news. though, is it, Chris? <laughs> <laughs> One of his favourites. One. Thank you, Neil. You, Chris. I also love <laughs> catharsis and top stories. <laughs> uh, thank you for listening, Buglers. Um, we will now play you out with some more contributors to the Bugle Wall of Fame to join the Bugle Voluntary Subscription Scheme to give a one-off or recurring contribution to keep the show free, flourishing and independent. Go to buglepodcast.com and click the donate button. Jonathan Monroe invented the instruction manual, prior to which people just prayed to their local deity to make something work, or just shouted at the device until it snapped into action. 
Alex Hoffman discovered that the site of the renowned Battle of Waterloo in 1815 was not, as many had thought, a large London station just south of the River Thames, but some land in modern-day Belgium. The station didn't actually exist until after the battle, noted Alex, so I think it's just coincidence. On which topic, J.C. Van Ocker discovered that Napoleon wore a tricorn hat as a means of triangulating exactly where he was in relation to things like trees, lunch and the enemy. Alan Hill inadvertently invented the game of darts whilst casually throwing carrots at a pizza during a particularly dull work dinner. And Andrew Corliss changed the rules of chess to remove the once popular option of sweeping all the pieces off the board and claiming a drawn game. Simon Witham discovered the etymology of the coiffurial term mullet, which emerged in 18th century philosophy when philosophers would mull over things for weeks if not months on end, leading to them growing long hair at the back, counterpointed by shorter dead hair atop the brain where the heat of thought had killed the roots of the hair. Chris White was a revolutionary figure in the evolution of the sport of table tennis after suggesting that the participants should be allowed to play while standing on the floor rather than on the table, should they so wish. The tactic was and remains widely adopted. Margaret Wharton conducted a reassessment of the works of the celebrated 17th century Dutch painter Rembrandt and calculated that he actually painted lots of self-portraits, overturning the previous assumptions that everyone who lived in 17th century Holland looked exactly the same, just a bit older or younger. And finally, Mana Sharma discovered the missing note in the musical scale. It was D, lying there hidden between C-sharp and E-flat. Thank you to all our contributors to the Bugle Wall of Fame. Hi, it's producer Chris from The Bugle here. Did you know that I have a new series of my podcast, Richie Firth Travel Hacker, out now? It's the show where Richie Firth and I talk about how to make travel better in our very special way. In this series, we discuss lime bikes, Teslas, the London Overground, and a whole bunch of other random stuff that possibly involves wheels or tracks or engines of some variety. God, what a hot sell this is. I mean, you 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 must be so excited. Listen now.